the sun was shining brightly on Munich, and the air was full of the joyousness of early summer. Just as we were about to depart, Herr Delbruck, the maitre d'hôtel of the Quatre Saisons, where I was staying, came down bareheaded to the carriage and, after wishing me a pleasant drive, said to the coachman still holding his hand on the handle of the carriage door, Remember you are back by nightfall. The sky looks bright, but there is a shiver in the north wind that says there may be a sudden storm but I am sure you will not be late. Here he smiled and added, for you know what night it is. Johann answered with the emphatic, Ja, mein Herr, and, touching his hat, drove off quickly. When we had cleared the town, I said after signaling to him to stop, Tell me, Johann, what is tonight? He crossed himself, as he answered laconically, Walpurgisnacht. Then he took out his watch, a great old-fashioned German silver thing as big as a turnip, and looked at it, with his eyebrows gathered together and a little impatient shrug of his shoulders. I realized that this was his way of respectfully protesting against the unnecessary delay, and sank back into the carriage, merely motioning him to proceed. He started off rapidly, as if to make up for lost time. Every now and then the horses seemed to throw up their heads and sniff the air suspiciously, on such occasions, I often looked round in alarm. The road was pretty bleak, for we were traversing a sort of high, wind-swept plateau. As we drove, I saw a road that looked but little used, and which seemed to dip through a little winding valley. It looked so inviting that, even at the risk of offending him, I called Johann to stop. And when he had pulled up, I told him I would like to drive down that road. He made all sorts of excuses and frequently crossed himself as he spoke. This somewhat piqued my curiosity, so I asked him various questions. 
He answered fencingly and repeatedly looked at his watch in protest. Finally, I said, Well, Johan, I want to go down this road. I shall not ask you to come unless you like, but tell me why you do not like to go. That is all I ask. For answer, he seemed to throw himself off the box. So quickly did he reach the ground. Then he stretched out his hands appealingly to me and implored me not to go. There was just enough English mixed with the German for me to understand the drift of his talk. He seemed always just about to tell me something, the very idea of which evidently frightened him. But each time he pulled himself up, saying, Valpurgisnacht. I tried to argue with him, but it was difficult to argue with a man when I did not know his language. The advantage certainly rested with him, for although he began to speak in English of a very crude and broken kind, he always got excited and broke into his native tongue, and every time he did so, he looked at his watch. Then the horses became restless and sniffed the air. At this he grew very pale, and, looking around in a frightened way, he suddenly jumped forward, took them by the bridles, and led them on some twenty feet. I followed and asked why he had done this. For an answer he crossed himself, pointed to the spot we had left, and drew his carriage in the direction of the other road, indicating a cross, and said, First in German, then in English, buried him. Him what killed themselves. I remembered the old custom of burying suicides at crossroads. Ah, I see, a suicide. How interesting. But for the life of me, I could not make out why the horses were frightened. Whilst we were talking, we heard a sort of sound between a yelp and a bark. It was far away, but the horses got very restless, and it took Johann all his time to quiet them. He was pale and said, It sounds like a wolf, but yet there are no wolves here now. No, I said, questioning him. Isn't it long since the wolves were so near the city? Long, long, he answered, in the spring and summer. But with the snow, the wolves have been here not so long. Whilst he was petting the horses and trying to quiet them, dark clouds drifted rapidly across the sky. The sunshine passed away, and a breath of cold wind seemed to drift over us. It was only a breath, however, and more of a warning than a fact for the sun came out brightly again. Johann looked under his lifted hand at the horizon and said, The storm of snow, he comes before long time. Then he looked at his watch again and straightway holding his reins firmly, for the horses were still pawing the ground restlessly and shaking their heads. He climbed to his box as though the time had come for proceeding on our journey. I felt a little obstinate and did not at once get into the carriage. Tell me, I said, about this place where the road leads? And I pointed down. Again he crossed himself and mumbled a prayer before he answered, It is unholy. What is unholy? I inquired. The village. Then there is a village? No, no. No one lives there hundreds of years. My curiosity was piqued. But you said there was a village. There was. Where is it now? Whereupon he burst out into a long story in German and English, so mixed up that I could not quite understand exactly what he said. Roughly, I gathered that, long ago, hundreds of years, men had died there and been buried in their graves. But sounds were heard under the clay, and when the graves were opened, men and women were found rosy with life and their mouths red with blood. And so, 
in haste to save their lives, aye, and their souls. And here he crossed himself. Those who were left fled away to other places, where the living lived and the dead were dead and not. Not something. He was evidently afraid to speak the last words. As he proceeded with his narration, he grew more and more excited. It seemed as if his imagination had got hold of him, and he ended in a perfect paroxysm of fear, white-faced, perspiring, trembling, and looking round him as if expecting some dreadful presence would manifest itself there in the bright sunshine on the open plain. Finally, in an agony of desperation, he cried, Walpurgisnacht, and pointed to the carriage for me to get in. All my English blood rose at this, and standing back I said, You are afraid, Johann. You are afraid. Go home. I shall return alone. The walk will do me good. The carriage door was open. I took from the seat my oak walking stick, which I always carry on my holiday excursions, and closed the door, pointing back to Munich, and said, Go home, Johann. Walpurgisnacht doesn't concern Englishmen. The horses were now more restive than ever, and Johann was trying to hold them in, while excitedly imploring me not to do anything so foolish. I pitied the poor fellow. He was so deeply in earnest, but all the same I could not help laughing. His English was quite gone now. In his anxiety he had forgotten that his only means of making me understand was to talk my language. So he jabbered away in his native German. It began to be a little tedious. After giving the direction home, I turned to go down the crossroad into the valley. With a despairing gesture, Johann turned his horses towards Munich. I leaned on my stick and looked after him. He went slowly along the road for a while. Then there came over the crest of the hill a man tall and thin. I could see so much in the distance. When he drew near the horses, they began to jump and kick about, then to scream with terror. Johann could not hold them in. They bolted down the road, running away madly. I watched them out of sight, then looked for the stranger. But I found that he, too, was gone. With a light heart, I turned down the side road through the deepening valley to which Johann had objected. There was not the slightest reason that I could see for his objection, and I dare say I tramped for a couple of hours without thinking of time or distance and certainly without seeing a person or a house. So far as the place was concerned, it was desolation itself. But I did not notice this particularly till, on turning a bend in the road, I came upon a scattered fringe of wood. Then I recognized that I had been impressed unconsciously by the desolation of the region through which I had passed. I sat down to rest myself and began to look around. It struck me that it was considerably colder than it had been at the commencement of my walk. A sort of sighing sound seemed to be around me with, now and then, high overhead, a sort of muffled roar. Looking upwards, I noticed that great thick clouds were drafting rapidly across the sky, from north to south at a great height. There were signs of a coming storm in some lofty stratum of the air. I was a little chilly, and, thinking that it was the sitting still after the exercise of walking, I resumed my journey. The ground I passed over was now much more picturesque. There were no striking objects that the eye might single out, but in all there was a charm of beauty. I took little heed of time, and it was only when the deepening twilight forced itself upon me that I began to think of how I should find my way home. The air was cold, and the drifting of clouds high overhead was more marked. They were accompanied by a sort of faraway rushing sound, through which seemed to come at intervals that mysterious cry which the driver had said came from a wolf. 
For a while I hesitated. I had said I would see the deserted village. So on I went, and presently came on a wide stretch of open country, shut in by hills all around. Their sides were covered with trees which spread down to the plain, dotting in clumps the gentler slopes and hollows which showed here and there. I followed with my eye the winding of the road, and saw that it curved close to one of the densest of these clumps, and was lost behind it. As I looked there came a cold shiver in the air, and the snow began to fall. I thought of the miles and miles of bleak country I had passed, and then hurried on to seek shelter of the wood in front. Darker and darker grew the sky, and faster and heavier fell the snow, till the earth before and around me was a glistening white carpet, the further edge of which was lost in misty vagueness. The road was here but crude, and when on the level its boundaries were not so marked as when it passed through the cuttings, and in a little while I found that I must have strayed from it, for I missed underfoot the hard surface, and my feet sank deeper in the grass and moss. Then the wind grew stronger and blew with ever-increasing force, till I was fain to run before it. The air became icy cold, and in spite of my exercise I began to suffer. The snow was now falling so thickly and whirling around me in such rapid eddies that I could hardly keep my eyes open. Every now and then the heavens were torn asunder by vivid lightning, and in the flashes I could see ahead of me a great mass of trees, chiefly yew and cypress, all heavily coated with snow. I was soon amongst the shelter of the trees, and there in comparative silence I could hear the rush of the wind high overhead. Presently the blackness of the storm had become merged in the darkness of the night. By and by the storm seemed to be passing away. It now only came in fierce puffs or blasts. At such moments the weird sound of the wolf appeared to be echoed by many similar sounds around me. Now and again, through the black mass of drifting cloud, came a straggling ray of moonlight which lit up the expanse and showed me that I was at the edge of a dense mass of cypress and yew trees. As the snow had ceased to fall, I walked out from the shelter and began to investigate more closely. It appeared to me that, amongst so many old foundations as I had passed, there might be still standing a house in which, though in ruins, I could find some sort of shelter for a while. As I skirted the edge of the copse, I found that a low wall encircled it, and following this I presently found an opening. Here the cypresses formed an alley leading up to a square mass of some kind of building. Just as I caught sight of this, however, the drifting clouds obscured the moon, and I passed up the path in darkness. The wind must have grown colder, for I felt myself shiver as I walked. But there was hope of shelter, and I groped my way blindly on. I stopped, for there was a sudden stillness. The storm had passed, and, perhaps in sympathy with nature's silence, my heart seemed to cease to beat. But this was only momentarily, for suddenly the moonlight broke through the clouds, showing me that I was in a graveyard, and that the square object before me was a massive tomb of marble, as white as the snow that lay on, and all around it. With the moonlight there came a fierce sigh of the storm, which appeared to resume its course with a long, low howl, as of many dogs or wolves. I was awed and shocked, and I felt the cold perceptibly grow upon me till it seemed to grip me by the heart. Then, while the flood of moonlight still fell on the marble tomb, the storm gave further evidence of renewing, as though it were returning on its track. Impelled by some sort of fascination, I approached the sepulchre to see what it was and why such a thing stood alone in such a place. I walked around it in red, over the Doric door, in German. Countess Dolingen of Graz, in Styria, sought and found death. 
1801, on the top of the tomb, seemingly driven through the solid marble, for the structure was composed of a few vast blocks of stone, was a great iron spike or stake. On going to the back, I saw, graven in great Russian letters, the dead travel fast. There was something so weird and uncanny about the whole thing that it gave me a turn and made me feel quite faint. I began to wish, for the first time, that I had taken Johann's advice. Here a thought struck me, which came under almost mysterious circumstances and with a terrible shock. This was Valpurgis Night. Valpurgis Night was when, according to the belief of millions of people, the devil was abroad, when the graves were opened and the dead came forth and walked, when all evil things of earth and air and water held revel. This very place the driver had specially shunned. This was the depopulated village of centuries ago. This was where the suicide lay, and this was the place where I was alone. Unmanned, shivering with cold in a shroud of snow with a wild storm gathering again upon me. It took all my philosophy, all the religion I had been taught, all my courage, not to collapse in a paroxysm of fright. And now a perfect tornado burst upon me. The ground shook as though thousands of horses thundered across it, and this time the storm bore on its icy wings, not snow, but great hailstones which drove with such violence that they might have come from the thongs of Balearic singers, hailstones that beat down leaf and branch and made the shelter of the cypresses of no more avail than though their stems were standing corn. At the first I had rushed to the nearest tree, but I was soon fain to leave it and seek the only spot that seemed to afford refuge, the deep Doric doorway of the marble tomb. There, crouching against the massive bronze door, I gained a certain amount of protection from the beating of the hailstones, for now they only drove against me as they ricocheted from the ground and the side of the marble. As I leaned against the door, it moved slightly and opened inwards. The shelter of even a tomb was welcome in that pitiless tempest, and I was about to enter it when there came a flash of forked lightning that lit up the whole expanse of the heavens. In the instant... As I am a living man, I saw, as my eyes turned into the darkness of the tomb, a beautiful woman with rounded cheeks and red lips, seemingly sleeping on a bier. As the thunder broke overhead, I was grasped as by the hand of a giant and hurled out into the storm. The whole thing was so sudden that, before I could realize the shock, moral as well as physical, I found the hailstones beating me down. At the same time, I had a strange, dominating feeling that I was not alone. I looked towards the tomb. Just then, there came another blinding flash, which seemed to strike the iron stake that surmounted the tomb, and to pour through to the earth, blasting and crumbling the marble, as in a burst of flame. The dead woman rose for a moment of agony while she was lapped in the flame, and her bitter scream of pain was drowned in the thunder crash. The last thing I heard was this mingling of dreadful sound, as again I was seized in the giant grasp and dragged away, while the hailstones beat on me and the air around seemed reverberant with the howling of wolves. The last sight that I remembered was a vague, white, moving mass, as if all the graves around me had sent out the phantoms of their sheeted dead, and that they were closing in on me through the white cloudiness of the driving hail. Gradually there came a sort of vague beginning of consciousness, then a sense of weariness that was dreadful. For a time I remembered nothing, but slowly my senses returned. My feet seemed positively racked with pain, yet I could not move them. They seemed to be numbed. 
There was an icy feeling at the back of my neck and all down my spine, and my ears, like my feet, were dead yet in torment. But there was in my breast a sense of warmth, which was by comparison delicious. It was as a nightmare, a physical nightmare, if one may use such an expression, for some heavy weight on my chest made it difficult for me to breathe. This period of semi-lethargy seemed to remain a long time, and as it faded away I must have slept or swooned. Then came a sort of loathing, like the first stage of seasickness, and a wild desire to be free of something. I knew not what. A vast stillness enveloped me, as though all the world were asleep or dead, only broken by the low panting as of some animal close to me. I felt a warm rasping at my throat, Then came a consciousness of the awful truth which chilled me to the heart and sent the blood surging up through my brain. Some great animal was lying on me and now licking my throat. I feared to stir, for some instinct of prudence bade me lie still. But the brute seemed to realize that there was now some change in me, for it raised its head. Through my eyelashes I saw above me the two great flaming eyes of a gigantic wolf. Its sharp white teeth gleamed in the gaping red mouth and I could feel its hot breath fierce and acrid upon me. For another spell of time I remembered no more. Then I became conscious of a low growl, followed by a yelp, renewed again and again. Then seemingly very far away, I heard a holloa, holloa, as of many voices calling in unison. Cautiously I raised my head and looked in the direction whence the sound came, but the cemetery blocked my view. The wolf still continued to yelp in a strange way, and a red glare began to move round the grove of cypresses, as though following the sound. As the voices drew closer, the wolf yelped faster and louder. I feared to make either sound or motion. Nearer came the red glow over the white pall which stretched into the darkness around me. Then all at once from beyond the trees there came at a trot a troop of horsemen bearing torches. The wolf rose from my breast and made for the cemetery. I saw one of the horsemen, soldiers by their caps and their long military cloaks, raise his carbine and take aim. A companion knocked up his arm, and I heard the ball whiz over my head. He had evidently taken my body for that of the wolf. Another sighted the animal as it slunk away, and a shot followed. Then, at a gallop, the troop rode forward, some towards me, others following the wolf as it disappeared amongst the snow-clad cypresses. As they drew nearer, I tried to move, but was powerless, although I could see and hear all that went on around me. Two or three of the soldiers jumped from their horses and knelt beside me. One of them raised my head and placed his hand over my heart. "'Good news, comrades,' he cried. "'His heart still beats.' And then some brandy was poured down my throat. It put vigor into me, and I was able to open my eyes fully and look around. Lights and shadows were moving among the trees, and I heard men call to one another. They drew together, uttering frightened exclamations, and the lights flashed as the others came pouring out of the cemetery pell-mell, like men possessed. When the further ones came close to us, those who were around me asked them eagerly, "'Well, have you found him?' The reply rang out hurriedly, "'No, no, come away quick, quick. This is no place to stay, and on this of all nights.' "'What was it?' was the question." "'asked in all manner of keys. "'The answer came variously and all indefinitely, "'as though the men were moved by some common impulse to speak, 
yet were restrained by some common fear from giving their thoughts. It, it, it indeed, gibbered one, whose wits had plainly given out for the moment. A wolf, and yet not a wolf, another put in shudderingly. No use trying for him without the sacred bullet, a third remarked in a more ordinary manner. Serve us right for coming out on this night. Truly we have earned our thousand marks, were the ejaculations of a fourth. There was blood on the broken marble, another said after a pause. The lightning never brought that there. And for him, is he safe? Look at his throat. See, comrades, the wolf has been lying on him and keeping his blood warm. The officer looked at my throat and replied, He is all right. The skin is not pierced. What does it all mean? We should never have found him but for the yelping of the wolf. What became of it? asked the man who was holding up my head and who seemed the least panic-stricken of the party, for his hands were steady and without tremor. On his sleeve was the chevron of a petty officer. It went home, answered the man, whose long face was pallid and who actually shook with terror as he glanced around him fearfully. There are graves enough there in which it may lie. Come, comrades, come quickly. Let us leave this cursed spot. The officer raised me to a sitting posture as he uttered a word of command. Then several men placed me upon a horse. He sprang to the saddle behind me, took me in his arms, gave the word to advance, and, turning our faces away from the cypresses, we rode away in swift military order. As yet my tongue refused its office, and I was perforce silent. I must have fallen asleep, for the next thing I remembered was finding myself standing up, supported by a soldier on each side of me. It was almost broad daylight, and to the north a red streak of sunlight was reflected like a path of blood over the waste of snow. The officer was telling the men to say nothing of what they had seen, except that they had found an English stranger, guarded by a large dog. Dog? That was no dog, cut in the man who had exhibited such fear. I think I know a wolf when I see one. The young officer answered calmly, I said a dog. Dog, reiterated the other ironically. It was evident that his courage was rising with the sun, and, pointing to me, he said, Look at his throat. Is that the work of a dog, master? Instinctively, I raised my hand to my throat, and as I touched it, I cried out in pain. The men crowded round to look, some stooping down from their saddles, and again there came the calm voice of the young officer. A dog, as I said. If aught else were said, we should only be laughed at. I was then mounted behind a trooper, and we rode on into the suburbs of Munich. Here we came across a stray carriage into which I was lifted, and it was driven off to the quatre Saison. The young officer accompanying me, whilst the trooper followed me with his horse, and the others rode off to their barracks. When we arrived, Herr Delbuck rushed so quickly down the steps to meet me that it was apparent he had been watching within. Taking me by both hands, he solicitously led me in. The officer saluted me and was turning to withdraw, when I recognized his purpose and insisted that he should come to my rooms. Over a glass of wine, I warmly thanked him and his brave comrades for saving me. He replied simply that he was more than glad and that Herr Delbrook had at the first taken steps to make all the searching party pleased, at which ambiguous utterance the maitre d'hôtel smiled, while the officer pled duty and withdrew. But Herr Delbrook, I inquired, 
How and why was it that the soldiers searched for me? He shrugged his shoulders, as if in depreciation of his own deed, as he replied, I was so fortunate as to obtain leave from the commander of the regiment in which I serve to ask for volunteers. But how did you know I was lost? I asked. The driver came hither with the remains of his carriage, which had been upset when the horses ran away. But surely you would not send a search party of soldiers merely on this account? Oh, no, he answered. But even before the coachman arrived, I had this telegram from the boyar whose guests you are. And he took from his pocket a telegram which he handed to me, and I read, Bistritz, be careful of my guest. His safety is most precious to me. Should aught happen to him, or if he be missed, spare nothing to find him and ensure his safety. He is English and therefore adventurous. There are often dangers from snow and wolves in night. Lose not a moment if you suspect harm to him. I answer your zeal with my fortune. Dracula. As I held the telegram in my hand, the room seemed to whirl around me, and if the attentive maitre d'hôtel had not caught me, I think I should have fallen. There was something so strange in all this, something so weird and impossible to imagine, that there grew on me a sense of my being in some way the sport of opposite forces, the mere vague idea of which seemed in a way to paralyze me. I was certainly under some form of mysterious protection. From a distant country had come, in the very nick of time, a message that took me out of the danger of the snow sleep and the jaws of the wolf. End of Dracula's Guest. Thank you, everyone, for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Check out the show at pgttcm.com. Check out the show notes on your listening device, on your smart device, on your laptop, or however you're checking this show out. Follow the show notes to check out the people who have been on the show as guests, find out what the books they're working on, or art projects, or movies. And of course, check out the sponsors. Support the people who support us. Find cool stuff from those folks over at Psychedelic Water. It's water with mild psychedelics that are legal in America, suspended in green tea and other delicious flavors. And we've also got Taza Chocolate. And Taza Chocolate, they are out of Somerset, Massachusetts. It's stone ground chocolate. They use dairy alternatives. It's vegan. And oh my goodness, it is really good. Some of them come in bars. Some of them come in those eels, like the abuelita. You can mix it in into, uh, you make your own hot chocolate. It's really good stuff. I really, you can eat it by itself. And that's Tasa. That's in the show notes. Who else do we got? We got Glary. Oh man, I love Glary. Glary is really inexpensive guitars. You can get some really good prices on amplifiers. Get good prices on mandolins. They've got all kinds of cool stuff. Not just guitars. I love guitars, but Glary has more than just guitars. Copper Cow. Okay, Copper Cow is amazing. It's these little packages that have this uh, coffee already inside. Some of them come with creamers. It's flavors like black, lavender, churro, uh, uh, salt caramel. They've got some really good flavors. I really like the lavender and the black. I'm going to try the churro pretty soon. Um, I have friends who have purchased this and they highly recommend it. Coffee from Vietnam. 
and just this really, 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 really good Vietnamese pour-over coffee that I highly recommend. Golden Goat CBD. Check it out. Golden Goat CBD. I have anxiety issues. I love, I live in a state where you can purchase uh, cannabis legally, so I don't go with their Delta, Delta 8, but do you, do you live somewhere where you can't just, I don't know, walk three blocks and everyone goes, hey, DB, and you get your order that you phoned in and then go home and then work on your podcast? No, maybe you live someplace that's awful. What if you're in Texas? Anyway, uh, check out, check out. Check them out. Golden Goat, CBD, Delta 8. They have chewables. They've got uh, gummies. They've got cool stuff like that. They've got uh, tinctures and whatever you need to get you going in the direction you need to be going. The Fret Wire. DIY guitar, guitar parts, and guitar accessories. Centrally located in Utah. Get what you want. Pretty darn quick. The Fretwire. So, yeah, they've got a pretty good community of people. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an advanced lutineer. The Fretwire, they've got people who will answer your questions. I assume they're, they're comment boards and stuff like that when I have questions on, like, oh, man, I want to make a baritone flying V, uh, but how am I going to get a baritone neck on a Gibson body? Wait a minute. This flying V was so custom already that, oh, man, okay. Better check the Fretwire forums, see if anyone else has had this problem. And generally, since there's so many people with the Fretwire, that work with the Fretwire, that do stuff with the Fretwire, it's like having a massive community. And also, pretty good prices, uh, pretty decent shipping, and I have to say, I, I like them. I've, I've worked with other companies in the past for building guitars. I like the Fretwire. And, yeah, if you want to get into building guitars, if you've just, I don't know, during the pandemic, did you learn how to play guitar and want to build them? I did the opposite way around first. I learned how to build guitars, and then I learned how to set up guitars, and then I learned how to play guitars. So, I don't know, maybe you want to do it the opposite way of me. You know how to play a guitar, now you want to learn the guts of it. Anyway, Fretwire's got you covered. Check them out in the show notes. Back to the show. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto. The Night Doings at Deadman's. A story that is untrue. It was a singularly sharp night, and clear as the heart of a diamond. Clear nights have a trick of being keen. In darkness you may be cold and not know it. When you see, you suffer. This night was bright enough to bite like a serpent. The moon was moving mysteriously along behind the giant pines crowning the south mountain, striking a cold sparkle from the crusted snow and bringing out against the black west and ghostly outlines of the coast range, beyond which lay the invisible Pacific. The snow had piled itself in the open spaces along the bottom of the gulch. Indeed, long ridges had seemed to heave and into the hills that appeared to toss and scatter spray. The spray was sunlight, twice reflected, dashed once from the moon, once from the snow. In the snow, many of the shanties of the abandoned mining camp were obliterated. A sailor might have said they had gone down. 
and at irregular intervals it had overtopped the tall trestles which had once supported a river called a flume, for of course a flume is flumen. Among the advantages of which the mountains cannot deprive the gold hunter is the privilege of speaking Latin. He says of his dead neighbor, he has gone up the flume. This is not a bad way to say, his life has returned to the fountain of life. While putting on its armor against the assaults of the wind, this snow had neglected no coin of vantage. Snow pursued by the wind is not wholly unlike a retreating army. In the open field it ranges itself in ranks and battalions. Where it can get a foothold it makes a stand. Where it can take cover it does so. You may see whole platoons of snow cowering behind a bit of broken wall. The devious old road hewn out of the mountainside was full of it. Squadron upon squadron had struggled to escape by this line when suddenly pursuit had ceased. A more desolate and dreary spot than dead man's gulch in a winter midnight it is impossible to imagine. Yet Mr. Hiram Beeson elected to live there the sole inhabitant. Away from the side of the North Mountain, his little pine log shanty projected from its single pane of glass a long thin beam of light, and looked not altogether unlike a black beetle fastened to the hillside with a bright new pin. Within it sat Mr. Beeson himself, before a roaring fire, staring into its hot heart as if he had never before seen such a thing in all his life. He was not a comely man. He was grey. He was ragged and slovenly in his attire. His face was wan and haggard. His eyes were too bright. As to his age, if anyone had attempted to guess it, one might have said forty-seven, then corrected himself and said seventy-four. He was really twenty-eight. Emaciated he was, as much perhaps as he dared to be, with a needy undertaker at Bentley's flat and a new and enterprising coroner at Sonora. Poverty and zeal are an upper and a nether millstone. It is dangerous to make a third in that kind of sandwich. 2. As Mr. Beeson sat there with his ragged elbows on his ragged knees, his lean jaws buried in his lean hands, and with no apparent intention of going to bed, he looked as if the slightest movement would tumble him to pieces. Yet during the last hour he had winked no fewer than three times. There was a sharp rapping at the door. A rap at that time of night and in that weather might have surprised an ordinary mortal who had dwelt two years in the coach without seeing a human face and could not fail to know that the country was impassable. But Mr. Beeson did not so much as pull his eyes out of the coals, and even when the door was pushed open, he only shrugged a little more closely into himself, as one does who is expecting something that he would rather not see. You may observe this movement in women, when in a mortuary chapel the coffin is borne up the aisle behind them. But when a long old man in a blanket overcoat, his head tied up in a handkerchief and nearly his entire face in a muffler, wearing green goggles and with a complexion of glittering whiteness where it could be seen, strode silently into the room 
laying a hard-gloved hand on Mr. Peason's shoulder. The latter so far forgot himself as to look up with an appearance of no small astonishment. Whomever he may have been expecting, he had evidently not counted on meeting anyone like this. Nevertheless, the sight of this unexpected guest produced in Mr. Beeson the following sequence. A feeling of astonishment, a sense of gratification, a sentiment of profound goodwill. Rising from his seat, he took the knotty hand from his shoulder and shook it up and down with a fervor quite unaccountable. For in the old man's aspect was nothing to attract, much to repel. However, attraction is too general a property for repulsion to be without it. The most attractive object in the world in the face we instinctively cover with a cloth. When it becomes still more attractive, fascinating, we put seven feet of earth above it. 3. Sir, said Mr. Beeson, releasing the old man's hand which fell passively against his thigh with a quiet clack. It is an extremely disagreeable night. Please be seated. I am very glad to see you. Mr. Beeson spoke with an easy good breeding that one would hardly have expected, considering all things. Indeed, the contrast between his appearance and his manner was sufficiently surprising to be one of the commonest of social phenomena in the mines. The old man advanced a step toward the fire, glowing cavernously in the green goggles. Mr. Beeson resumed. You bet your life I am. Mr. Beeson's elegance was not too refined. It had made reasonable concessions to local taste. He paused a moment, letting his eyes drop from the muffled head of his guest, down along the row of moldy buttons confining the blanket overcoat to the greenish cowhide boots powdered with snow, which had begun to melt and run along the floor in tiny rills. He took an inventory of his guest and appeared satisfied. Who would not have been? Then he continued. The cheer I can offer you is, unfortunately, in keeping with my surroundings. But I shall esteem myself highly favored if it is your pleasure to partake of it, rather than seek better at Bentley's flat. With a singular refinement of hospitable humility, Mr. Beeson spoke as if a sojourn in his warm cabin on such a night as compared with walking fourteen miles up to the throat in snow with a cutting crust, would be an intolerable hardship. By way of reply, his guest unbuttoned his blanket overcoat. The host lay fresh fuel on the fire, swept the hearth with the tail of a wolf, and added, But I think you'd better skedaddle. The old man took a seat by the fire, spreading his broad soles to the heat without removing his hat. In the mines, the hat is seldom removed except when the boots are. Without further remark, Mr. Beeson also seated himself in a chair which had been a barrel, and which, retaining much of its original character, seemed to have been designed with a view to preserving his dust of it, should please him to crumble. For a moment there was a silence. Then, from somewhere among the pines, came the snarling yelp of a coyote and simultaneously the door rattled in his frame. There was no other connection between the two incidents than that the coyote has an aversion to storms, and the wind was rising, yet there seemed somehow a kind of supernatural conspiracy between the two. 
and Mr. Beeson shuddered with a vague sense of terror. He recovered himself in a moment and again addressed his guest. Four. There are strange doings here. I will tell you everything. And then if you decide to go, I shall hope to accompany you over the worst of the way. As far as where Baldy Peterson shot Ben Hike, I dare say you know the place. The old man nodded emphatically, as intimating not merely that he did, but that he did indeed. Two years ago, began Mr. Beeson, I with two companions occupied this house. But when the rush to the flat occurred, we left, along with the rest. In ten hours, the gulch was deserted. That evening, however, I discovered I had left behind me a valuable pistol. That is it and returned for it, passing the night here alone, as I have passed every night since. I must explain that a few days before we left, our Chinese domestic had the misfortune to die while the ground was frozen, so hard that it was impossible to dig a grave in the usual way. So on the day of our hasty departure, we cut through the floor there and gave him such burial as we could. Before putting him down, I had the extremely bad taste to cut off his pigtail and spike it to that beam above his grave, where you may see it at this moment, or preferably when warmth has given you leisure for observation. I stated, did I not, that the Chinaman came to his death from natural causes. I had, of course, nothing to do with that, and returned through no irresistible attraction or morbid fascination, but only because I had forgotten a pistol. That is clear to you, is it not, sir? The visitor nodded gravely. He appeared to be a man of few words, if any. Mr. Beeson continued. According to the Chinese faith, a man is like a kite. He cannot go to heaven without a tail. Well, to shorten this tedious story, which, however, I thought it my duty to relate, on that night, while I was here alone and thinking of anything but him, that Chinaman came back for his pigtail. Five. He did not get it. At this point, Mr. Beeson relapsed into blank silence. Perhaps he was fatigued by the unwanted exercise of speaking. Perhaps he had conjured up a memory that demanded his undivided attention. The wind was now fairly abroad and the pines along the mountainside sang with singular distinctness. The narrator continued. You say you do not see much in that, and I must confess, I do not myself. But it keeps coming. There was another long silence, during which both stared into the fire without the movement of a limb. Then Mr. Beeson broke out almost fiercely, fixing his eyes on what he could see of the impassive face of his auditor. Give it him. Sir, in this matter... I have no intention of troubling anyone for advice. You will pardon me, I am sure. Here he became singularly persuasive. But I have ventured to nail that pigtail fast, and have assumed that somewhat onerous obligation of guarding it. So it is quite impossible to act on your considerate suggestion. Do you play me for a modoc? Nothing could exceed the sudden ferocity with which he thrust this indignant remonstrance into the ear of his guest. It was as if 
He had struck him on the side of the head with a steel gauntlet. It was a protest, but it was a challenge. To be mistaken for a coward. To be played for a Modoc. These two expressions are one. Sometimes it is a Chinaman. Do you play me for a Chinaman? Is a question frequently addressed to the ear of the suddenly dead. Mr. Beeson's buffet produced no effect. And after a moment's pause during which the wind thundered in the chimney like the sound of clods upon a coffin, he resumed. But as you say, it is wearing me out. I feel that the life of the last two years has been a mistake. A mistake that corrects itself. You see how. The grave. No, there is no one to dig it. The ground is frozen too. But you are very welcome. You may say at Bentley's. But that is not important. It was very tough to cut. They braid silk into their pigtails. Qua! Six. Mr. Beeson was speaking with his eyes shut, and he wondered. His last word was a snore. A moment later, he drew a long breath, opened his eyes with an effort, made a single remark, and fell into a deep sleep. What he said was this. They are swiping my dust. Then the aged stranger, who had not uttered one word since his arrival, arose from his seat and deliberately laid off his outer clothing, looking as angular in his flannels as the late Signorina Festorazzi, an Irish woman six feet in height and weighing 56 pounds, who used to exhibit herself in a chemise to the people in San Francisco. He then crept into one of the bunks, having first placed a revolver in easy reach, according to the custom of the country. This revolver he took from a shelf, and it was the one which Mr. Beeson had mentioned as that for which he had returned to the gulch two years before. In a few moments, Mr. Beeson awoke, and seeing that his guests had retired, he did likewise. But before doing so, he approached the long, plaited wisp of pagan hair and gave it a powerful tug to assure himself that it was fast and firm. The two beds, mere shelves covered with blankets, not over clean, faced each other from opposite sides of the room. The little square trapdoor had given access to the Chinaman's grave being midway between. This, by the way, was crossed by a double row of spike heads. In his resistance to the supernatural, Mr. Beeson had not disdained the use of material precautions. The fire was now low, the flames burning bluely and petulantly with occasional flashes projecting spectral shadows on the walls, shadows that moved mysteriously about, now dividing, now uniting. The shadow of the pendant queue, however, kept moodily apart, near the roof at the farther end of the room, looking like a note of admiration. The song of the pines outside had now risen to the dignity of a triumphal hymn. In the pauses, the silence was dreadful. 7. It was during one of these intervals that the trap in the floor began to lift. Slowly and steadily it rose, and slowly and steadily rose the swaddled head of the old man in the bunk to observe it. Then with a clap that shook the house to its foundation, it was thrown clean back, where it lay with its unsightly spikes pointing threateningly upward. 
Mr. Beeson awoke and without rising, pressed his fingers into his eyes. He shuddered. His teeth chattered. His guest was now reclining on one elbow, watching the proceedings with the goggles that glowed like lamps. Suddenly, a howling gust of wind swooped down the chimney, scattering ashes and smoke in all directions, for a moment obscuring everything. When the firelight again illuminated the room, there was seen sitting gingerly on the edge of a stool by the hearth side, a swarthy little man of prepossessing appearance and dressed with faultless taste, nodding to the old man with a friendly and engaging smile. From San Francisco, evidently, thought Mr. Beeson, who having somewhat recovered from his fright, was groping his way to a solution of the evening's events. But now another actor appeared on the scene. Out of the square black hole in the middle of the floor protruded the head of the departed Chinaman. His glassy eyes turned upward in their angular slits and fastened on the dangling queue above with a look of yearning unspeakable. Mr. Breeson groaned and again spread his hands upon his face. A mild odor of opium pervaded the place. A phantom clad only in a short blue tunic quilted and silken, but covered with grave mold, rose slowly, as if pushed by a weak spiral spring. Its knees were at the level of the floor, when with a quick upward impulse, like the silent leaping of a flame, it grasped the cue with both hands, drew up its body, and took the tip in its horrible yellow teeth. To this it clung in a seeming frenzy, grimacing ghastly, surging and plunging from side to side in its effort to disengage its property from the beam, but uttering no sound. It was like a corpse artificially convulsed by means of a galvanic battery. The contrast between its superhuman activity and its silence was no less than hideous. 8. Mr. Beeson cowered in his bed. The swarthy little gentleman uncrossed his legs, beat an impatient tattoo with the toe of his boot, and consulted a heavy gold watch. The old man sat erect and quietly laid hold of the revolver. Bang! Like a body cut from the gallows, the Chinaman plumped into the black hole below, carrying his tail in his teeth. The trap door turned over, shutting down with a snap. The swarthy little gentleman from San Francisco sprang nimbly from his perch, caught something in the air with his hat as a boy catches a butterfly, and vanished into the chimney as if drawn by suction. From away somewhere in the outer darkness floated in through the open door a faint far cry, a long sobbing wail as of a child death strangled in the desert, or a lost soul borne away by the adversary. It may have been the coyote. In the early days of the following spring, a party of miners on their way to new diggings passed along the gulch and strained through the deserted shanties found in one of them the body of Hiram Beeson stretched upon a bunk with a bullet hole through his heart. The ball had evidently been fired from the opposite side of the room, for in one of the oaken beams overhead was a shallow blue tint where it had struck a knot and been deflected downward to the breast of its victim. Strongly attached to the same beam was what appeared to be an end of a rope of braided horsehair, which had been cut by the bullet in its passage to the knot. 
Nothing else of interest was noted, excepting a suit of mouldy and incongruous clothing, several articles of which were afterward identified by respectable witnesses as those in which certain deceased citizens of Deadman's had been buried years before. But it is not easy to understand how that could be unless, indeed, the garments had been worn as a disguise by death himself, which is hardly credible. End of The Night Doings at Deadman's, a story that is untrue. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto, Birmingham, Alabama. What a bunch of spookiness that was. I hope we learned our lesson and whatever the moral of that spooky story was. Or we just got spooked. Anyway, hey everyone, I hope you're having a good time. I hope you're having fun enjoying these spooky stories. I'm trying to keep the music to the minimum because someone said, Hey, it's too loud and it's distracting from the spookiness. And I said, Hey, I'm not that great at creating atmosphere for spookiness. Unless it's like an RPG or a haunted house. Anyway, so thanks everyone for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. I have been your host, DB. Join us weekly when Farmer Dave and I get more into the Cthulhu Mythos and less about spooky stories. And we have special guests like Ken Height, Scott Glancy. In the past, we had Rodney and Anonymous of the Dead Milkman. with all kinds of various writers game designers, artists, musicians, you name it, we've had them on. And yeah, thank you so much for listening. And join us again. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your ma, tell your pa, or I'll ship you down to South Agua. You're going to get that shirt in the shop. PGTTCM.com. Check the show notes. Check out our sponsors. Check out the links. Check it out, and goodbye.